Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get to the updates on the case out of Upper New York State involving the group of young adults who pulled into the wrong driveway and they were shot at by the homeowner. So let's rewind to April 15th of this year, when a car driven by 19-year-old Blake Walsh of Cambridge, New York, was driving with two passengers and his girlfriend, 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis. The four were looking for a party in a heavily wooded remote residential area that's about 50 miles north of Albany. Now, driving his Ford Explorer, Blake thought he had turned into the correct driveway. As they approached the home, no one exited the vehicle but two shots were fired from the porch of the home in the direction of the car. As Blake tried to quickly maneuver his way out of the driveway, the second round hit his girlfriend, Kaylin, killing her. Now, the four weren't alone. A group of friends were following them to the party and had also turned into the wrong driveway. When the shots were fired, this group had already realized they had the wrong home and they were already leaving the driveway. Now, this area in Upper New York, it has limited cell service, and Blake told NBC News that they didn't have any service while they were in the driveway, but he and Kaylin and the others had kind of already figured out they were at the wrong address when the shooting began, and Blake said most of the following moments of the shooting were a blur. He remembers one of the friends shouting, they're shooting, go, and in the heartbreaking interview with NBC... Blake said the following while crying, I want to believe it was instant. I'm hoping it was. I'm praying it was. So he's referencing the death of his girlfriend. 
Now, I think you can understand his pain a little bit more when you hear that the group had to drive about five miles after the shooting to even get in cell service range to call 911. And Kaylin was struck in the neck with that second shot, and she was pronounced dead when EMTs arrived. So for five minutes, Blake and the friends endured the trauma of trying to frantically help Kaylin before they could call EMTs. Now, Washington County Sheriff Jeffrey Murphy confirmed to reporters following the incident that 65-year-old Kevin Monahan fired the two shots. Now, the sheriff said the groups were clearly posing no threat, and Monahan is facing a second-degree murder charge in connection with Kaylin's death. Now, his attorney at his bail hearing argued that Monahan has never been arrested or convicted in New York, and that he also has been a local resident for more than 30 years, so he should be out on bail. The attorney also said that multiple vehicles were revving their engines and coming up Monaghan's driveway at the high rate of speed. He said his client is remorseful and felt, quote, horrible that a young girl's life was lost. Well, just one month later, the story has changed. In a court filing obtained by WNYT, Monahan is now claiming that he was in bed at 8.30 that evening and couldn't have done the shooting because he was asleep. He also claims he told officers that hunters were shooting in the area all of the time. Now, the court filing also revealed that Monahan refused to speak with police when they arrived on scene that night, saying Monahan went into his house, would not answer the police request to talk, and he immediately called his lawyer. Now, Monahan's lawyer is disputing this claim, calling it, in his own words, complete hooey. That according to the Albany Times Union. His lawyer said he exercised his right to counsel and that the police knew if Monaghan stepped off of his porch, they could arrest him without a warrant. Now, police are saying the reason Monaghan gave on the night of the shooting for entering his house and refusing to talk with them is because it was dark and he wasn't going to walk towards them in the dark. Now, the court following also says that Monaghan told police the following. I mean, you guys are cops, but you know, who knows these days? He also added that he was nervous about approaching a cop car. Now, Monaghan has been denied bail three times since the shooting. And his lawyer is also saying the court date of September 7th is too soon and that there is no way he can be ready to defend his client in that amount of time. Kaylin's father, Andy, told CNN at the bail hearing for Monaghan that his daughter was smart, kind, and loving. He also said she was making her way through college with a dream of working with animals. Her father said the following, For this man to sit on his porch and fire at a car with no threat, it angers me so badly, and I just hope to God that he dies in jail. Her dad then went on to say that Kaylin deserves justice. Now, with three denials of bail, I would expect Monaghan to remain in jail until his court date. And I'll keep you updated if that date changes and if there are any new developments in this case. All right. If you listened to Monday's episode of Rise and Crime, and of course you did, right? Well, when you listened to that episode about Gabby Petito, this next case out of Tennessee has so many eerie similarities. It began the first week of May when 33-year-old Nikki Alcarez and her boyfriend Tyler Stratton embarked on a cross-country trip from Tennessee to California to visit family. Now, the two were driving with a friend in Nikki's black Jeep Wrangler with their dog. And the two stopped in Texas to drop off that friend in Amarillo. Now, according to a police report, the two then picked up a bottle of Fireball 
and they began to drink while driving across Texas into New Mexico. It was then that a witness called police saying that a man was standing over a female punching her. When police arrived, they separated the two and began asking questions. Nikki claimed to the police that she was in the passenger seat when Tyler began to hit her for no reason. She said she was able to jump out of the vehicle at a rest area. Now, Tyler's story is mostly different. He told deputies that they both were drinking and that Nikki was the one driving. Tyler claimed that Nikki hit him in the mouth for no reason. He also blamed her behavior on blackouts that he says she experiences when she is drinking hard liquor. Now, the police report does note that Tyler was bleeding from his mouth and nose when he was detained. And upon searching the vehicle, police also saw blood spatter on the passenger side door. And from that, they concluded that the blood had to come from Tyler because Nikki wasn't bleeding. So much like the altercation that happened in the Gabby Petito case, deputies separated the two and tried again to see if they could figure out who was actually driving. And neither would admit to driving the Jeep, but both were clearly intoxicated. Now, after tempers cooled, neither Nikki or Tyler wanted to press charges on each other. And police came to the conclusion that Nikki and Tyler had both been combative while traveling the interstate. Now, both were given rides away from the scene, with Tyler being dropped off in Edgewood, New Mexico, and Nikki and the dog being transported to Moriarty, New Mexico. All right, now I've watched the body cam footage of the potential arrests or detainments. And Tyler is, like, how can I best explain this? He's like blurry, like he can give his address and his name, but the answers come slowly and he's not being combative with the officers. And he does say that even though he wants the dog, that Nikki can take the puppy if she wants to. And Nikki in the video is more active and possibly like agitated. She's not fully angry, not fully sad. She's just bothered which stands to reason, right? She's just been in a physical altercation, but she's seeming to handle her liquor just a little bit better than Tyler. Again, I'd use that word blurry. She just isn't as blurry as Tyler is. All right, Nikki's Jeep was towed from the scene of the incident, but according to Nikki's brother, Josh, Nikki's injuries were so severe from that altercation that a truck driver had to pull Tyler off of her. He says the truck driver was the one who alerted police to the domestic violence situation, and he claims his sister had a traumatic brain injury and a broken hand or wrist following the altercation. Well, pictures of Nikki circulating online show Nikki with a black eye and bruises on her upper arms and chest. Now, I would say, also looking at the video, some of these bruises do seem older. They're pretty deep purple, maybe been around longer than the few minutes that it took for police to get there following this altercation. All right. Here in the story is where accounts start to differ depending upon the source. Now, according to Court TV, the same police report that reported the domestic dispute apparently has an addendum that notes a detective spoke to an employee at the towing company. Now, that employee told the detective that the Jeep was picked up by Nikki. She arrived at the towing company in a car with California plates and that the man she was with was not the same person from the altercation. So it's not Tyler. And the tow truck company says the man drove away in the Jeep and Nikki drove away in the car with the California license plates. All right, but other reports say Nikki left Moriarty, New Mexico with Tyler. And maybe both are possible. Just one happened before the other, and we don't have the information to fill in the gap. All right, so who's the other guy? 
Well, Nikki's sister, Tony, has acknowledged that Nikki called Danny, who's a family friend, on May 6th after the domestic violence incident. And Danny seems to be the one who drove to New Mexico and spent the night with her at the hotel. And Danny intended to travel the rest of the way to California with Nikki, so he's going to be her escort. But after the night's rest, Nikki told Danny she needed to find Tyler, and Danny and Nikki separated after that. So three days later, on May 9th, Nikki's sister, Tony, said she received a text from Nikki's phone saying she was in Arizona and she was driving to California. And Nikki's brother, Josh, well, he's been unable to make contact with Nikki. And that text was the last contact they had. He says all the calls have gone to voicemail and that his texts have not been delivered. Well, on Saturday, Nikki was spotted on cameras in Redding, California. The store's ATM caught a still photo of Nikki. And reports from the store say she was selling her phone. The number attached to that phone is now out of service. And I think it's important to point out that Nikki and Tyler were headed to Orange County, California. Redding, where she was selling her phone at Walmart, well, it's about 580 miles from Orange County. That's about a 10-hour drive. And Nikki's brother Josh is certain the person in the ATM photo is his sister. He also believes he can see Tyler in the background. Now, Tyler is wanted on a warrant on a separate theft case, and friends and family also say this is not the first domestic dispute between the two. As far as the traffic stop in New Mexico, well, it's being heavily scrutinized, just like the Gabby Petito traffic stop. Torrance County, New Mexico Sheriff Frizee told News Nation that there, quote, should have probably been an arrest. He also said the district attorney in that county frowns on these kind of arrests, but he did commit in the interview to get to the bottom of the situation. Well, now we're catching up because breaking just yesterday, both Nikki and Tyler have been found in Northern California. And I think this case also mirrored the Gabby Petito case in a way that the public became vigilant looking for Gabby. The public stepped in and reported seeing the Jeep in Eureka, California. When police caught up with the two, both Nikki and Tyler cooperated with authorities. But Tyler was arrested on his outstanding warrant, and he'll be extradited to Tennessee. As of now, we'll just have to wait to see how Nikki's health is and if she will tell the remainder of the story. And I think this highlights the importance of the public being aware of their surroundings. In this specific case, the trucker was aware and stopped the domestic altercation, and then the public helped find Tyler and Nikki. And as in all true crime cases, I think we can improve our lives by learning from others who experience trauma. All right, now out of Idaho, an update concerning recently found guilty cult mom, Lori Vallow Daybell. And this update really isn't that surprising, but it does have a couple of twists that maybe close followers of the case might not have seen coming. See, Lori's defense team has filed for a new trial, and that's not the surprising part. Totally expected. But let me catch you up on the case, and then I'll dive into the surprising reason for the filing for a new trial. Now, this is always the hard part of this case when I bring you updates. It's really just impossible to summarize in one to two sentences, but I'm going to give it a good effort at refreshing your memories quickly in this incredibly complicated case. Lori Vallow Daybell was found guilty of first-degree murder in the deaths of her two children, 16-year-old Tylee Ryan and 7-year-old J.J. Vallow. And remember, these kids went missing in October of 2019. And we first came to know about this case when Lori and her new husband, Chad Daybell, were seen vacationing in Hawaii. They were without the kids, even though law enforcement were searching for the kids after the family members alerted police to their 
desperate attempts to contact the children. All right, the remains of the children were found buried in the backyard of Chad Daybell's property in June of 2020. So that's about nine months later. And Lori was also found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder in the death of Chad's first wife, Tammy Daybell. Now, Tammy was found by Chad dead on the floor of her bedroom in October of 2019. So her death was sandwiched between the disappearance of the two children and the discovery of the remains. And Lori and Chad... Well, they married two weeks after Tammy's death. All right, that's maybe just 20% of the details from this case. But it is important that I let you in on this next detail because it's the linchpin for the call by defense attorneys for a new trial. Lori's brother, Alex, killed Lori's fourth husband, Charles Vallow, in Arizona in July of 2019. All right, I'm going to repeat that one again. Lori's brother, Alex, killed Lori's fourth husband, Charles Vallow, just two months before her two children were murdered. Now, Alex claimed he was killing Charles in self-defense when Charles showed up to Lori's home one morning. And police, well, they originally closed the case. However, after the events in Idaho unfolded, Arizona reconsidered, and they've now filed charges of conspiracy to commit murder in the death of Charles against Lori. And Alex, he can't face criminal charges because he's dead also. He died from an apparent pulmonary embolism in December of 2019. That's one of the weird parts of this case. It seems like everybody that con- comes in contact with Lori ends up dying. All right, so there's your background. And now to the question, why do defense attorneys believe Lori deserves a new trial? Well, they believe one of the jurors knew about evidence that wasn't presented during the trial. In an interview, Five days following the conviction of Lori Daybell, a juror told a reporter that police in Arizona had some significant red flags and that if they had followed up on those red flags, that maybe the events in Idaho would not have occurred. Okay, this juror's name is Saul Hernandez, and defense attorneys contend that Saul should not have known this information or anything about these red flags since it wasn't presented in the trial. Okay, here's how it went down. In an interview with Saul, East Idaho News reporter Nate Eaton asked Saul if when he mentioned the red flags, he was referring to when Charles was shot. Saul replied with the phrase, before and after. Now, the reporter responds that Saul is correct, and he references body cam footage of Charles Vallow from six months before he was killed. The reporter is specifically recalling Charles talking with police about how Lori has lost her reality and he was worried about JJ and Tylee's safety. So the before part that Saul could be referencing is from months prior. Remember, this event happened in January and Charles is killed in July. And this before information was absolutely not included in the trial. Now, Saul doesn't go on in the interview to talk about the footage, but he does shake his head in the affirmative when the reporter is referencing the incident. Okay, so what's that possible hiccup for the defense? Saul, the juror, well, he could have done this research into the case during those five days after the verdict, but before he was in the interview. So in my opinion, after following this case, that seems like a pretty big hiccup for the defense. Now, Saul, the juror, is saying exactly that. He claims he watched the Dateline story two days after Lori's conviction, which is perfectly legal. In a follow-up interview with East Idaho News, Saul says he did not know about the police video with Charles until after the trial and until he watched the Dateline episode. All right, that's not the only thing included in this motion. 
Defense attorneys have more issues with any discussion in the trial concerning the death of Charles. So in the motion, they contend that testimony about the death was used as character evidence. That would be evidence to explain who Lori Vallow Daybell is. But that evidence was described as demonstrative, which, if that was how it was labeled, should not have been allowed in the testimony. Therefore, the defense believes this was confusing to the jury and that objections should have been sustained. And for his part, Saul, the juror, well, he does refer to the Charles evidence as demonstrative during the first interview. But during the second interview, he says the jury was not confused at all. All right, on to the other items the defense cited in the motion for a new trial. They also believe the instructions given to the jurors were confusing. When the indictment was initially filed against Lori, the state wrote that Chad, Lori, Alex, and others conspired to kill the children and Tammy. But during the trial, the state alleged that the conspiracy was only between Lori and Alex, or Lori and Chad, or Chad and Alex, so just two people in the conspiracy versus five or more. Now, the motion claims that because the state changed the conspiracy charge midstream, it rises to being prejudicial and unlawful. Now, the final flaw, according to the motion from the defense, is that the court allowed the prosecution to amend the indictment nearly two years after it was filed. Now, this amendment was what some analysts called basically like a typo, and that typo needed to be clarified before the case went to the jury. So this could just be really nitpicky and not something that the defense can really rely on to overturn a trial. Now, of course, the prosecution is going to file an objection to this motion. It's not an if scenario, it's a when scenario. When will they actually file the objection? So I'll keep watch on this motion for a new trial and if it has any chance at overturning the verdict. Lori is scheduled to be sentenced for her guilty verdicts on July 31st. Well, that's your Thursday edition of Rise in Crime. If you're loving this content, please rate the podcast five stars and you can follow Rise in Crime on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Remember, it's Rise in Crime, just an N between the words Rise in Crime. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there.